Hello, everybody. This is Dwayne Neustainer and Tony Tressel. Happy to have you back for another Tree Actions podcast, the Human Forestry podcast. And joining us on this episode is Chris DeLavera, all the way from Binghamton, New York. Are you in Binghamton today, Chris? Right on, right on. <laughs> yeah, the weather's changing. So we're getting down to some of our uh, year-end podcasts. So I'm like really glad you agreed to be on the show. And we always kind of start off by asking people where or how their journey in the trees kind of began. Uh, if you can think back, you know, for some people it's as a kid, for some people it's part of work. There isn't a right or wrong answer to this. But if, if you think back, where did your exposure to trees and uh, start? Well, uh, you know, I, I can remember like it was yesterday. Wow. Uh, we grew up in a, you know, very modest, uh, you know, apartment complex. And about 20 steps outside our front door, there was a, uh, a huge pine tree, um, huge at the base and had very horizontal limbs that went all the way up to the top. And, you know, as kids, eight, nine, 10 years old, we used to climb to the top to where it thinned out to nothing more than just a branch and just go up there and there'd be two or three of us. And we would just swing back and forth on that thing and not even realizing how uh, how dangerous that was at the top blowing out and hitting, you know, 55 or 60 limbs on the way down. But uh, so it was... Uh, you know, like anything else, kids love monkey bars. They love climbing trees, anything like that. And then, you know, getting into sales here at Buckingham, um, you know, obviously Buckingham sells to the utility world as well as the arborist world. And I just took a huge liking to the arborist uh, world and, uh, you know, signed up for a couple of uh, Arbor Master yeah. classes and just took a, a, a huge liking to it. Um, went out and bought flat sole boots and, um, I stayed in a really seedy motel up in Syracuse. So I just decided to, you know, leave the hotel at like four o'clock in the morning because I couldn't sleep and just go down to where the training was and got a line in the tree and, and uh, just practice footlock wow. because I was in a class with a bunch of experienced arborists and I was, I had never really climbed or been on rope. So I just wanted to bring the, my level of knowledge up to where I thought it, it could be. And uh, let me say the rest is all history. Wow. And, um, you know, it was a, it, it's really cool. And, and, you know, back in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a lot of a lot of innovation was coming in, new saddles and new climbing techniques and stuff like that. So it was just a really awesome time, exciting time to to be involved in, yeah. in, in seeing what the old timers did to what the new guys were doing. And it was just, a, it was a lot of fun. And, and that, that, that's something that has remained. So to this day, I think, you know, and, and even if you compare those days to nowadays, it's, it's another, you know, a, an equivalent leap forward in an, I don't know if you call it advancement, but certainly technology and technique. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you know, back in the early 2000s, you know, it was, uh, you know, people climbing with uh, top line hitches yeah. and then just going to, a, you know, to a pressic minding pulley yeah. and a Blake's hitch was like holy mackerel. And then, you know, from the Blake hitch came all kinds of different knots yeah. and, uh, you know, foot locking. And then, you know, of course, now single rope technique is pretty yeah. 
you know, it, it's pretty standard, you know, where back then only certain people were doing it. Now you have more, you know, large tree and line clearance, you know, line clearance companies going to single rope, yeah. which, you know, 20 years ago was like, holy mackerel, <laughs> oh, you know, we got to climb on two parts of the yeah, rope. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's been really, it's been really cool to, to, to kind of see the transition and, and how it continues to, to move along. How, how was, what year was that when you did the Arbormaster series? Um, I want to say it was about, you know, right around 99 to 2000. It was when they were doing a four part, you know, they would do two days and then you came back a month later and do two more days. And it was, I think Tim Ard did the, uh, the chainsaw portion and Rip did the climbing portion. So it was like you learned what you did for two days, you, you practiced those skills, and then you came back a month later, and then you did chainsaw and then in the tree stuff. So it, it, it seemed to be pretty well formatted. And, um, uh, you, know, it, uh, you know, it certainly got me to where I, I thought I should be and, and just piqued my interest into learning more about, you know, what, what guys were doing in tree. Yeah. And it was a, a three-part, was the, was the model, like in the beginning – they were. It was a seminar model that Bob Weber and, and Ken were doing, and it, it. By the time Bob decided, it was like he 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 kind of left and let left it to Ken, so to speak. Bob decided he wanted to do more research climbing down in Brazil or something, and uh, and then Rip wanted to be involved, and that and then when they met Steve Wood with Husqvarna, and I think you knew Steve. Uh, they, that's yes. when things started to change and Tim Mard was brought in and that's when the curriculum kind of came into being now I, you know I don't want to speak for Evermaster and so on but I mean I was I was involved with them obviously from the mid 90s on 96 I believe 95, 96 but uh, yeah that that program you know it was really monumental and, and when a lot of the people that we have on the podcast talk about those times in fact Tony you referenced because you did you take that in Pennsylvania the series? I was uh, resting in Virginia, so just south. I uh, was down like resting in Virginia, just outside of DC. So I took the four, or so, I think it was four days okay. straight, but it was chainsaw climbing and rigging. Um, yeah, and that would have been oh. 98, 99 yeah, yeah. ish, somewhere yeah. in there, like right on that. So yeah, I did it in Virginia. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, it was, it, it sure was, uh, yeah, it, it, it's cool. And, and, you know, back then it just didn't seem like, um, you know, like people would just go out and buy a pickup truck, a rope, a chainsaw, and, you know, they were arborists. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really been interesting to see the change and in, in the willingness to people to take training and continue their education, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, is, which is, you know, sorely was needed. Uh, it continues to, to be needed. No, I think it's what I hadn't realized is uh, the effect it would have, you know, what we're talking 25 years later now that like, you know, cause and I, this has come up like DJ and I have been working on going, you know, going through curriculums and stuff and train curriculums. And we come up like, but where did this term come from? And you just trace it back. And it was right from that. Right. Like nobody sat around and decided what to call a, a knot, you know, like anything. And then a lot of the, So I hadn't realized how influential, you know, those early Arbor Master courses were with those, because it was not that, you know, Ken and Rip and Tim and, and Bob were making stuff up, but they didn't have, they just used yeah. terms that they had always used. And then it just got adopted in the industry. And it's just fascinating now looking at, at that 
that effect and how it's kind of, it still rolls on to this day, 20, 25 years later. Well, and, and I was going to say, we haven't had, and Tony, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we've had anyone on the show with the manufacturer's uh, perspective. You know, everyone's been, you know, we've all been affected because we all use equipment, but, you know, you, Chris, have, have you know, for, as a manufacturer, you've witnessed, you know, progression and change and, you know, from a design and change standpoint. I'm curious what it's like trying to respond to this industry as a manufacturer. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, we've been fortunate enough that we have known and been involved with a lot of the, you know, the, the, the top climbers and the innovators. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and we've, uh, you know, we've worked with those guys to come up with, with, uh, you know, new products and, and whatnot. Um, but the thing is you could take a 10 minute nap in this industry and just wake up three years behind the lines. <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know, I, you know I, I remember back in the day, I mean, Toby, Toby Sherrill was making lots of trips overseas and, you know, traveling throughout Europe. And that seems to be where a lot of the, you know, the new techniques and, and you know, products were coming from. And right around the, the 13, 14, 15 timeframe, OSHA was making some huge changes in, uh, in the way utility line workers uh, worked and the products that they were using. So we basically had all hands on deck and kind of focused on that for a couple of years. And then we said, okay, that's done. Uh, where are we? And then we looked around and it was like, holy mackerel, you know, like uh, we're still on the starting line and, you know, the competition and, you know, the industry is just like taken off. So we're, we're playing a little bit of catch up, but I mean, some of the challenges that we have is, uh, you know, as a manufacturer is, uh, you know, and, and this just goes with life in general is just competing with overseas products and you know competition um you know we've been doing a lot of research our, our labor rates here at least in new york state and it's going to vary by state are about 15 times what they would be in any of the uh you know countries in asia yeah. and that when you have heavy labor intensive products you know when you take a saddle and uh, you know it takes five hours to build that saddle or, or harnesses yeah. are called um just puts you at a, a huge competitive disadvantage when when you're out there trying to sell a harness for six hundred dollars and your competition selling it for four um getting that message across to the individual isn't as easy in the arborist uh market because it's so much more fragmented Ah. um you you think you go see pacific gas and electric for instance on on you know northern california you go see one guy or committee and they make the decisions for the 3000 linemen that they may have, right. you know, where if I got to go see 3000 arborists, I mean, I could spend, you know, I, I could see 20 a day and not see as many as I need to see in a year. So it's harder to get that message out right, right. And, and to, to really see what people want and, and to see what they respond to. So a, a lot of challenges, like, like you said, just being, being, a, I would say sleep at the wheel or being, you know, focused here, you turn your, your, your attention to this and all this changes over on, on, on the other side. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, that it speaks to, uh, yeah, I remember listening to a PPE manufacturer, uh, someone that makes uh, PPE and they were really lamenting this because they were, they had manufacturing. They, they were, 
what they were lamenting was they were basically felt forced in order to remain competitive to take their manufacturing to other countries. They had no, it was either that or price themselves out of the market by staying true to local manufacturing. And uh, it just seems, you know, it, I guess it's a little bit political here, but it really, it, it's a reality. And I don't know how many people really get that. Like, like how many people really understand, like as a consumer, do they really understand what it costs and the difference and the advantages that can be had? And do you, like, is like, and, and, then, and then not only that, those, the, those consumers that do, how do they, what impact can they have on saying, you know, we're going to buy local, we're going to buy homemade, you know, made in the USA and, and we're going to support those vendors that do that. But ultimately the difference in price becomes so large that, that they almost have no choice, you know, with the, and, you know, do you feel, cause I know this gets talked about, but like, is there a potential of a, almost a box store type of situation developing in the arborist industry? Uh, yeah, I don't, I, I, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say, um, you know, all, all we can do, the, the problem with us is, uh, you know, the president of our company um, is very focused, obviously, on providing the, the safest, best equipment as possible. Um, to, to take your business overseas, you, you have to manufacture, you know, 10,000 of this one widget. And, you know, to, to make it worthwhile, um, you know, and, and we just don't have that kind of volume as as probably many people do. So you either have to pay more money for it overseas and then, you know, do you lose control of the safety aspect? Of right, it? right. Um, you know, so what you what you can do is maybe you can source components right. and then you can control that. And then you have to, you know, you assemble it and you build it all here. But. Um, you know, we, we've, uh, you know, haven't really even delved that much into it either. Um, you know, on the utility side, folks are much more cognizant to the made in USA, especially union, you know, proud union people, you yeah, know, yeah. If, you, if you get down to local 126 or any, any of those folks, you know, they'll spend the extra money to, to make sure that it's made in the United States and, you know, they'll question it, you know, where's this made, where's that made? So, um, I, I don't know if the... You know, I don't know if that'll ever really, I'd say, trickle down to the to the individual, you know, the residential guy that is just looking for a saddle. He goes on a website and you can buy a nice looking saddle, uh, you know, for $150 or look at Buckingham and be $350 or $400. He's going to, yep. you know, more times than not, pick the, pick the less expensive one. So I don't know how to how to compete with uh, how to compete with that or how to address them. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. And I I, I think that's a, a challenge that many manufacturers face and that, you know, you make the best decisions you can along the way. I, I have felt or noticed though that when it comes to PPE particularly or like, like particularly climbing and that type of equipment, there's a less of a trend in that market to the, to overseas production, it seems like a little bit. You know, or, or they haven't gotten, you know, where it's, you know, something that is like a wedge. You know, you make a wedge wherever, whatever, it's a wedge, right? But it's something you hang your life off of, you might look at that differently, you know. Um, however, I do, you know, recognize that the components are certainly uh, something you see, you know, being introduced, like certain buckles or rings and that type of thing. Um, 
Yeah, it, it's just the testing, you know, the testing that goes into it too. And, and all of that has to be, you know, priced, yeah. you know, into the product to get your money back. You know, for instance, you know, we just we just invested way north of $100,000 to put in ice, uh, we call it the ice shack. So basically we have a, you know, a, a freezer that can go down to 20 below uh, that I think it has an inside space of about 18 feet. We put a pole in there. So now we can test our wood pole fire restriction to the CSA and the ASTM ice standards wow. because there's not a facility anywhere that we're aware of. And, um, you know, so obviously that, that costs money. Those are investments, yeah. but to be able to be on the forefront of, of testing to these, uh, these wood pole requirements, it's necessary. You know, so those are the types of things that we're doing. That's an interesting thing. And just without giving up any secrets, is that, does it make that, like, do you notice difference in, in, in testing when you test in cold temperatures like that? Is there, do things act differently? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Especially, again, on, on the utility side, um, you know, and, and this is where, you know, it, it's kind of funny because CSA has really been in the forefront of, uh, you know, utility requirements, you know, for, for PPE. And they came up with ice pole test. Uh, one thing about CSA is they'll come up with the requirements, but they don't tell you how to go about to test them. <laughs> um, so we actually had a facility local here that was a, a food distributor uh, yeah. organization, and they allowed us to, to come in and do some testing and did all that. That was at the, the, the forefront of wood pole fall restriction. And they've since closed their doors and we're sitting there. We have a couple of new designs that we wanted to introduce and we had no way to, to test right. it. Uh, called everywhere. And, uh, you know, our president, she said, hey, screw it. <laughs> Let's buy our own freezer and, and build our own test facility. Yeah. So, you know, at some point, maybe the, you know, ANSI and, and ASTM will, you know, we'll start looking at saddles and wood pole, you know, wood, you know, restriction devices, tree, like tree squeeze or anything like that. Um, but, you know, typically, you know, I, I'm not sure how much work that, a, that an arborist needs to do on a frozen tree, yeah. you know, maybe just does it out of a bucket or just waits a couple of days for everything to melt before they get yeah, into right. it. But, you know, obviously on the utility side, when, when there's an ice storm, they got to get back up, put the power up, right? They, they don't have the luxury of waiting right. for things to thaw out. So, but just different things that cause us to have to, you know, get more for our product to, uh, you know, whether it be overseas competition, the, the, the rigorous testing, uh, building of test facilities, it's, it, it's all, you know, it's all combined. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, being tree actions, we're not, we're not allergic to the utility world that there isn't an agenda to stick to trees here. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, you're, I know that you're of late been more involved on the utility side, but do you see correlation between innovation and development that's happened in tree care or with tree climbing? And has that filtered into utility work or vice versa? Like, is there, Oh, God, yes. Oh, yes. Wow. <laughs> you know, 30 years ago, a lineman didn't know what a carabiner was. Wow. Um, you know, their their positioning straps were, uh, you know, the, the inch and three quarter, big, heavy nylon, you know, they call them buck straps and, and scare straps. Um, the, 
basically the norm right now is, uh, you know, just a, we call it an adjustable uh, positioning lanyard, which is a piece of half inch rope with a, with a mechanical adjuster on it. Um, that those are the norms. Um, people now are ascending towers on single rope. You know, they're getting, they're launching a line into a tower, you know, up over a tower, establishing an anchor point, um, and then climbing on a, a mobile fall arrestor, you know, uh, to, to ascend. Um, some utilities are getting into rope access, you know, which is, which is kind of like tree, tree work on steroids, you know, um, and, and some contractors and utilities are even allowing these guys to set ropes that they can actually retrieve from the ground, really? you know, almost like a, like a modified friction saver. So yeah, if you think about it, if you have to climb a tower, if you can repel or do, you know, utilize a controlled descent. You know, climbing down to me is a lot harder than climbing up. Right. So, you know, you can you can really just save a, a, a worker's body by just allowing them. And I think it's safer to control the scent off a structure than it is to to climb. So uh, there's all kinds of stuff that, that really it's it, and it's so it's exciting on utility side to see the uh, you know, the, the techniques and the equipment kind of coming over from the arbor side wow. and rock climbing and stuff like that uh, to the utility. So, so what, what do you think has prompted that transition? Like, cause I, in my, I, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like it's been accelerated in like the last five, maybe 10 years, like certainly in the last five years where, or has it like, whereas Arborist made it quite a shift. We were talking about going all the way to the mid nineties. It took till the mid you know, 2015, 2020s even. Well, I don't know. Where did this shift occur and why did it take, like what made that happen in the utility world? Was that was that your guys' involvement or, or like where did it come from, do you think? Well, I think it's a combination of, of a couple things, Dwayne. It's, uh, you know, certainly us being involved with Arborist and utilities, you know, we started bringing these positioning lanyards to, to, to show like, hey, instead of having, because they're wearing rubber gloves and protectors, instead of dealing with this buckle, here, check this out. You know, people would kind of look at you and be like, yeah, but that's a piece of rope. And then we worked with, uh, you know, a major rope manufacturer to put a red core in the center. So that was that was a Buckingham thing. I think the reason why we got the audience that we got was some of the older guards were retiring and younger folks that were in charge of safety and methods were coming on board. You know, when you used to say, hey, why not just do a controlled descent or repel off this tower? You're like, no, we can't do that. Why? Because uh, we can't. We just can't do it. And, and now you have some of these younger guys, and, and a lot of them are firefighters. A lot of them are high-angle rescue that happen to be linemen that are coming over. And they're saying, yeah, why not? So, um, you know, it's been the equipment has, has, is there. It's, it's a lot more mainstream and the attitude is there. Um, you know, people can go out and do research. Now they, they go on YouTube and they can go on, you know, blogs and, and see, wow, people, if you, if you can use a controlled descent to, to come off the, the side of a mountain to go down and rescue somebody, why can't you do that in, you know, on a tower? Yes. You know, it's, uh, you know, they're very similar, you know, you just don't have a lot of limbs and stuff that are coming off a tower, but you have arms and, you know, uh, stuff like that. So it, it's been the equipments there. Some of it was Buckingham. Uh, some of it was the uh, the younger generation coming up saying, 
Yeah. What do you mean? No, we can't. Yes, we can. Right. right. Well, I, I remember when we started with going back to that Arbormaster part series you're talking about. When you got to the rigging section, you know, we would use the we would use single rope to position ourselves. You know, choking with a running bowl and leaving a long tail so you could reset it after you you could descend and you know talking about the the difference in ascent versus descent and the damage it does to your body and, and talking about comfort and working smarter, not harder. Right. And that was, that was a big shift already. Like to where we would put the figure eight below the, the hitch. You probably remember that. Right. And then we would descend using the hitch as a backup because there wasn't a device, you know, which accelerated into using, you know, then we started using a green green, I think, um, you know, and that, you know, which I think in some ways hastened the development of the rig even. You know, because Petzl's seeing Arbor's. I remember Rudy one time saying, like, you guys are used, we make something and all of a sudden it's being used by a lot of people for a completely different application, you know, and that's why they came up with the, the Griot as a lanyard positioner because everyone was using Griot for lanyards. They're like, eh, no, it's not made for that, man. But, uh, you know, that's, that's something that maybe is, you know, for whatever reason, trickled over. You know, I, I think it's, uh, you know, I remember doing a seminar for a utility company in British Columbia. I can't remember the year. I want to say like early 2000. It was 01 or something. And they wanted me to look at their rescue stuff. And it was like a rescue thing. And it, we weren't doing a lot of stuff with utilities. One of the first times we'd ever worked with utility. And uh, I said, man, like they wanted to descend with a casualty, you know, and clip in. And I said, man, this belt isn't even made for fall. It isn't made for uh, – Work, it's only work positioning. Like you're not so supposed to suspend it. It didn't really have a suspension component, the original lineman belt. Like you couldn't really suspend it. It was designed to be always your feet on the pole. And then they're lowering guys off of it. Eh? Yeah. And I was like, and I remember we actually built a harness, but uh, I have it in my office because the guys found it doing some cleanup and I didn't let them throw it away because it was a harness developed uh, with the kind of the arborist style for Lima. I mean, you guys have gone way beyond that now, and it's really cool to see. But I want to also draw attention to the fact, because you, you're talking about towers and stuff, and I remember you telling me, you've gone up some pretty tall towers, like like, like pretty high. How, what's, how high have you gone? Uh, the, the, the tallest one I climbed was uh, in a right outside of downtown Philadelphia. It was, a, they call it a three-legged self-supporter. And it was 240. 240 um, feet. And, and it was, yeah. And, and it was really cool. What I didn't realize, like I said, we were just on the outskirts of, of the city center, Philadelphia. And what I didn't realize is being 240 feet up, you don't hear traffic. You hear very little up there, except the wind blowing through your heart. <laughs> and, and I just thought that it was really cool. And, and I was getting a better understanding why these, uh, you know, I call them the, tele the wireless telecom guys do what they do because when they're up there, they're kind of their own, they're their own boss or in their own world. You just hear wind whistling through your hard hat and um, it, it's really quiet and serene up there. So I, I, I thought it was, it was really neat to, to be up there and just kind of experience that. It was kind of weird to, to say, but I'm sure you've had moments like that where you just get somewhere and just like, Wow, um, I get it. I think I get it. Well, I think it's one of the mystiques of working at heights in general. You know, whether it's a tree or a tower, when you get high enough, you're in a you're in a small percentile category of people that either 
can do it or have the experience of working in that environment, whether it's a tree or a tower or whatever it is. You know, I, I, you know, there's these guys that go up to the, the, the thousand foot mark. I can't imagine what that must be like. <laughs> you know, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. And you even tried about even getting up there was, was like you had to have stations of breaks and like just physically climb. I have a 80 foot tower in my yard that I have a flag on. And every once in a while, I got to go up there and deal with it. And like, I'm only climbing up 70 feet, right? And it, it's, it's not the same as climbing a tree. That's a weird ladder to climb, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I just think that, you know, any, any time I, I feel it, if, if I want to sell to a market or understand a market, I have to, I have to get into it. You know, that was the reason why we did the, I did the Arbor master thing and I did training uh, with, with a company that, uh, you know, trained rescue off of, uh, off of towers for the telecom guys. Um, you know, lineman type training. It, it's like, you can't expect me to go out there and understand what people are doing if I don't know what they're doing. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that was definitely a, uh, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a real neat experience. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, you know, in all these experiences, working at Heights, working with Harvest, working with linemen, utilities, rescue, you know, how, how do you feel that has, you know, uh, showed up for you in, in your, in your, in your life with your family, personally, like as, as any of the lessons or have you drawn any parallels and that, that's kind of the, one of the, 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 the things about this podcast, why we call it tree actions in the human forestry podcast, because, you know, I, I've started in my older age or whatever you want to call it, um, seeing the parallels that the human forest has with us as people, like how trees help one another, how, trees are interconnected you know have you can you have you ever thought about that like how your involvement in in you know even your job and working with tree people linemen whatever like how that's affected and changed who you are as a person and do you ever draw parallels from that in your life absolutely uh it's funny that you brought that up because i i just uh had a discussion with my daughter she's i was telling tony she just turned uh, 20. I said 19, but it's 20. Hope she is not listening. But um, and, and we just had this conversation that, um, you know, when, when you're young and uh, you, I think you're less understanding of people and somebody will look at you the wrong way or say something to you and, and then you're just quick to pass judgment on them. So again, I, I took all these extra training uh, curriculums just so I could understand what the people in those industries were doing, the telecom guys, transmission, pole top, arborist, so I could under, better understand them. And, and I think that's what's how that's crossed over to my personal life is that, you know, I'll wake up and say something to my wife and she'll snap at me. And the old Chris would have just snapped back and started an argument. Well, maybe maybe she had a bad dream or maybe she just got off the phone with her sister and her mother's sick. Um, so what I do is I try to, you know, understand maybe what that person's going through. And instead of past judgment, just, well, maybe she's having a bad day. I mean, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dig into it unless, you know, unless she asks me for help, but you know, you deal with people in different ways. Uh, as a manager, I've learned that, and you might be more aggressive with somebody than you are with somebody else that might be a little bit more sensitive to things. But uh, I, I just think it's the understanding part. 
And not everybody's not everybody out there is a bad person. Not everybody out there wants to start a fight. And you know, if you snap at me, I'm just going to step back and say, "Geez, Dwayne, no, I, I understand that." And maybe Dwayne's having a really bad day. Maybe something tragic has happened in your life, and um, you know, instead of me coming at you, just uh, just you know, back off and, and understand it and uh, be there. I, I, so I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's no. just the understanding. Of, of the market and the people that you're dealing with. And then that's kind of cross over to the family and dealing and understanding your family members and friends right. and loved ones. And, and is there like, is there any way that you see the, the example of that? Well, let, let's just use trees as the example, or like, do you find, like, I know you spend time in the woods. I know that you're, you're a hunter and, and a, you know, a, a sportsman. Um, when you're in that environment, like what, what did the trees mean to you there? And, you know, you, you sit in tree stands and what goes through, a, a, you know, Chris Delavera's manufacturer uh, mind as, you know, when you're in that environment and what, what brings you that, that to that place where you will sit for a couple, three, four hours waiting for a deer to walk by. Oh, well, it, it, it's, um, well, first of all, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the one thing just being involved with PPE and, 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 and equipment, I'm a lot more noticing of straps that hold your tree stands on <laughs> being in not such good conditions. And, you know, people will be like, oh, you know, there's a rope there. There's a there's an ascender at the base of the tree. Use that. And I'm looking at that thing going, I think I'd be better off just free climbing as opposed to attaching to that. <laughs> but um, as far as my surroundings, I do notice the trees more. Like I'll be walking in the woods and, and I'll just come across a, a monstrous white oak that, you know, four people couldn't put their arms around holding hands. And I'll just sit there and kind of reflect on that for a little bit and say, wow, what is this tree scene? You know, uh, you know, what has this thing been through? And and it's just amazing that they can live in these harsh environments and just thrive. Um, I, I do notice the trees a lot more and, and, and the beauty of some of these trees. And, you know, um, we were down in, we were down in Savannah, I believe it was Savannah. And my wife and I were traveling and just the big, uh, oh, what, what are the oaks down there? The live oaks with the Spanish moss on them. And I'm just like, honey, look at that tree. And she's like, yeah, uh, cool. And I'm like, but look at it. You know, this tree is, could be a hundred plus years old and the Spanish moss is just growing off of it. And, you know, it's just it, the beauty of the trees, which I guess if you're not in this industry, people just look at it and say, yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah. Um, but they don't, they don't really realize how cool it is or how beautiful it right. is. Right. So, and you, yeah, I agree. I agree. And I, I, that's, I guess, kind of what I wonder about, is it unique to arborists or is it unique to tree people or is there a difference? Cause I think there's people, you know, we've are obviously are, are the people that we know are typically in the tree world. I, I I'd like to get some guests on the show that are, are tree people that aren't really tree people, but they just like trees and, and, and talk about that a little bit. But you know, you in your job have been connected with tree people. And so their passions and their views and you inadvertently, whether you like it or not, you're going to learn a little bit about trees, right? Whether you're climbing them, whether you're cutting them, you have no choice but to learn a bit about where they grow, how they grow and, 
and so on. Even, you know, how many arborist conventions have you been to? How many conferences have you been to where, you know, inadvertently you hear a talk about insect disease or biology or about pruning or about shigo methodology? Like, like you've, you've been around, you've been immersed in it to one degree or another and, and that has an effect. Like, so, um, but is that what it is? Do you think people that are absent from that don't necessarily have that connection? Or if they do, how does it happen, do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's it, it's going to be the same in just about any any industry or market you you get involved with. I think there's going to be some arborists out there that are that are good arborists that just look at arbor culture as their way of life and you know their business, and they go out and they do their work, and then at, at five o'clock they just shut it down and maybe not appreciate the beauty. And then there's going to be arborists out there that you know that that might want to you know, lean up against the tree for 10 minutes and become one with the tree before they, they go to work. I, I think it's you know, everything that I've ever gotten involved with. I've just dove in head first. Right. So um, it's it just my personality. So I think I've really taken a liking to it and in, in the beauty of, of trees. And, um, you know, I, I think you're going to get both sides of the spectrum, okay. you know, and, and I see that on the utility side, the linemen, you know, there's, there's guys that I'm hanging out with and be like, he be like, Oh yeah. Um, we're driving down the road. This was hurricane Irene and this whole line was down and I built this line. Me and my crew built this line. And, and there's guys that really take pride in that yeah. in you know, knowing what hurricanes they've worked. Um, and then there's guys that be like, yep, I'm a lineman from eight to four. And I go home, and then I'm, I'm a family man. So I, I think you're gonna you're gonna get that varying degree of intensity. Uh, uh, I don't know if that's the right, right. word. Um, you know, whether whether you're in the arboriculture or utility world, um, you know that that j just kind of either really really into it, or you know, hey, this is what I do for a living, and um, you know, I turn it off at the end of the day, and then maybe in between there. Yeah, I appreciate that, and I, it, it, it's back to the uh, what you said earlier about judgment. You know, I think it's easy to, you know, if people don't feel the same way as you do about something or have the same passion or drive or zeal, then there must be something wrong with them, which is simply a judgment, right? It's not, they're, they're just different. You know, why are some people zealots about their chosen profession or the trees or whatever it is, and some people, eh, no, I'm, you know, aren't, um, you know, it's just that we're all a little, we're all different. You know, I guess even, it even, it even ties right back to the, to the human forest. Cause I, I don't know that all things in the forest are connected. I think everything is connected to some degree or, or shape, but, um, you know, and then part of me wonders if that's just part of the disconnect that we experience, you know, as uh, in our journey as people, like, are we sometimes more connected or less connected based on whatever, you know, where we are at in life, you mentioned, you know, as young people, maybe not as sensitive as you were now. And, and like, how does that, you know, I think it's called maturity, but how does that exactly happen? Is it just age or is it through, you know, what, what occurs, like what, you know, I think in trees, you know, what makes a, an old oak that old and what it survived, how did it survive it? How did it affect it? How did it change it? Cause the oak that you're looking at that only four people that, that four or five people need to like, it's that kind of diameter was one day or at one point in time was just a sapling, you know, and it, um, you know, and that's sort of like us too, isn't it? Like, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah, you certainly mature. I, I wish I could, 
you know, I couldn't really define the aha moment that, uh, you know, I woke up one day and just said, bam, you know, like I'm going to be more understanding. I think it just, <laughs> it happened over time. Um, you know, I have a very great understanding wife. She lets me go on hunting trips and fishing trips, as you well know. <laughs> and, um, you know, like, God, if she wants to put pink curtains up, let her put pink curtains up, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's not a big deal. And, and, and then, you know, just learning to not sweat the stuff that you have no control over. Like I, we opened a podcast as, you know, I'm sitting here in rainy Binghamton, you know, 10 years ago, I'd have been fretting, God, I want to go hunting and I can't hunt in the rain, do this, do that. And guess what? You can sit here and worry about it, but I have no control over it. So why worry and, and drive yourself crazy over things and forces you have no control about? So I, I think it is maturity. Um, you know, just it's unfortunate it took me. 45 years to, to grow up, but maybe I'm ahead of some people and behind other people. But, uh, well, I, I think you nailed it. Then I think you hit it on the head there kind of, uh, you know, and I've of late, uh, thought about, you know, how, again, getting back to the trees and the examples that they are to us. I, it struck me like trees can't run away from their problems, right? They can't run away from whatever happens to them, like the hurricane or, the blade, you know, like, like whether it's a development or whatever encroaches upon them. And sometimes they succumb to it. Like, you know, the hurricane takes them out and sometimes they break from it, but you know, they'll do their best to continue to survive if possible. And how much alike are we not like that? You know, but the lessons for trees, I, and this is something that was it just the other day. I was thinking like, they can't, they can't run away. So they, they have to recover from whatever happens to them. You know, and, and we think we're in control. We think we can run away. <laughs> you know, we think we can get away from it. But but we really are like no. a tree in that way. We can't. You know, what's going to happen is going to happen. And no matter how much you worry about it, it's still going to occur probably. And you can you can make choices to make uh, your outcomes, you know, maybe better or worse. But, but ultimately, what's going to happen is going to happen. Like you don't know that the accident you're going to get into next week is going to happen or not. Right. It, it, it's going to happen and you got to move on from that point. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if we've lost Tony. He hasn't said anything in a while. And I know his picture's frozen. And he did talk about having a, a less than quality internet. So Tony, I just, I want to do a check-in because it's been a while since you heard from you. I'm still here. Okay, good. <laughs> Chris and I have been. I'm curious that Tony, that, that, that you are here, you know, we've been talking about some things. Um, I, I'm curious just to have some input on you on this whole uh, line of thinking as far as, uh, well, what we've been talking about. What have you been processing on it? I, I'm curious to hear your, your musings on it. Yeah, I was following along. Um, I don't know. It, it's it's different. I think, you know, for me in my experience in arboriculture has been, I mean, I've always liked trees and I appreciate trees and in the outdoor part of my job as an arborist has always drawn me to it. But, you know, the more I think on it, I think I stuck with it for as long as I have because of the people that do the work. Um, you know, we've talked about it in podcasts before. I think I fell into arboriculture reluctantly because my brother needed help. And I think I stayed with it because somewhere along the line I found a tribe of people that I've worked with. And, you know, it's interesting talking with Chris and it's, you know, I've done, I've been in tree shops and in power lineman shops around the world. And if you close your eyes first thing in the morning, it's the same conversations by the same type of people doing, you know, it's just, they're, they're really 
power alignment and tree arborists, you know, production arborists, and even line clearance arborists all cut from the same cloth. They see the world through similar lenses. And um, I've always been, and I think I'm, I'm drawn mostly to that, that type of person that does the work. You know, certainly the trees and the, the lessons I've learned from the trees are are great. But for me, it's always been much more about the people that do the work um, that's, that I think that's kept me doing it for the longest time. And when I do get disconnected or move on from yes. things, it's usually because I've lost that. Somewhere along the line, I lost that sense of community. That's an interesting perspective that you brought up because uh, we, we've, we've said the same thing. Uh, you know, whether whether you're at the International Lyman's Rodeo or at TCIA, um, the, the folks walking around, they look very similar. You know, um, I, I will say that, uh, you know, I hope my utility guys aren't uh, listening. The arborists are, are in many cases much better shape. <laughs> you know, it's. Um, you know, but you, you know, you go to the rodeo and you look at. Uh, so we just got back from the International Lyman's Rodeo, which is, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like the ISA of the utility industry, and uh, you know they have multiple events and mystery events, which are really cool. And you look at some of these guys and they look like they're 50, 60 pounds overweight, but boy, can they fly up a pole and do the work? You know, it, it's like Call of Duty, right? Duty calls, and, and these folks get it done, but. Um, you know, there, there's a lot more bucket work that's going on on the utility side than, than climbing, you know, depending on the utility, some utilities climb more than others, but uh, yeah, they are, they, 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 there's very similar in appearance. They're similar in mannerism and um, you have both extremes guys that live it, breathe it and eat it. And then the guys that say, yep, they, this is what I do for a living. And um, you know, and, and neither one of them's wrong. Right. They, they, it just uh, it doesn't make it doesn't make you wrong because you want to, you know, live, eat and breathe trees. And it doesn't make me wrong if I just want to go do my work safely and, and come home and, and uh, you know, turn it off at the end of the day. So uh, everybody's right. And again, it goes right back to the understanding thing. It's just like, uh, hey, I understand you. You understand me. And, you know, it's. Uh, you know, it sounds a little corny, but I, I think it is. I think if there was a lot more understanding in this world, it'd be a, a much, you know, harmonious place to yeah. exist. Well, having space for it, like you said, having space, you know, uh, the whole concept of looking at it, trying to put yourself in the other person's view or perspective. You know, you you don't know what's happened in that person's time frame, right? Either before they said what they said to you or you know, the reason they're, they have a, you know, they're in a dark place because you have no idea, you know, trying to have space for that, for each other is, is huge. And you know, and it is really the human force. Again, it's the human force is about us, the people, the, the force that is people that we interact with. We're these, you know, we're like walking around trees that interact randomly at the grocery store, gas station and or at a conference, you know, it's, uh, I, I, the alignment rodeo thing, I'd like, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it sparked a thought in me. I, I, I think I, we do interact with a lot of linemen, and that may be something, Tony, we should think about getting some other perspectives on the show or on, on the podcast. But Because um, I think right now most of our listeners aren't that familiar with the linemen rodeo, but I think they're all quite familiar with uh, the tree climbing competition. So, like, you've been to many of these events. I know you have. You, were just, you said you were just recently at one. Did you say there's mystery events as well? Yeah, yeah. So the the mystery events are base. Yeah, the mystery event is just basically an, uh, an event 
that uh, you don't know what you're going to do until you get there. You, you know, you, you you show up at the trade show, you get your information packets, and a mystery event might be an insulator change out with a hot stick. Um, you know, and and so basically what you know, people practice for everything and then, you know, they get a mystery event and wow, that might be something we never practiced for. And then now, now you got to go away with your team and come up with a game plan on how, how you're going to attack that. Um, so it, you know, I, I've always thought about that, you know, and, and I've had conversations with people that, uh, you know, are really involved with ISA and um, it's a little bit harder on the tree side because, you know, when you, in the Lyman's Rodeo, you can set up 200 poles that are exactly the same. You know, everything is the same height off the ground. And, you know, where, you know, you don't have that luxury where you're going to have 50 trees that are exact same height. And, you know, I can complain that, geez, you know, my mystery event was harder because there was a lean <laughs> on this. So I don't know how you would, how you would get that done, you know, as opposed to just changing something up on one of the existing events or, or something. But uh, it, it's quite a it's quite an event. They had, you know, 1,300 competitors, I believe, uh, that they were managed to get through in one day. Wow. So you can imagine the, uh, you know, the amount of coordination uh, and whatnot to, to make that happen. But it is, uh, you know, and, and these rodeo guys are kind of like the, you know, the best of the best, you know. Um, you know, some, some utilities just allow their guys to practice a lot more than others, but it's really a camaraderie. And, and what I see the, the parallels to the ISA is you'll always see guys from different utilities kind of sharing information. It, it's really, a, it's an information sharing event as well. Yeah. Um, you know, as opposed to a competition, because, you know, there, there's a thing in the line, line, market line industry it's like am i my brother's keeper you know like i'm watching out for you and you watch out for me and um you know utilities used to be very skeptical about sharing information that they've learned and that they've developed on safer ways to do things and it's like why you know if if i'm a, a utility and there's a neighboring utility and we figured out how to do something safer or figured out a way around a dangerous situation, why not share that information with everybody? And there's a lot more shows and conferences that are designed for that and talking about, you know, how to, how to make it a safer place. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, but yeah, the ISA, uh, the, the international and the rodeo are very, very similar with similar groups of guys. Uh, the, you know, the ITCC is the best of the best and, the, the Lyman's Rodeo is, is kind of like the best of the best, the guys that want to compete and, and uh, you know, yeah. move things forward. Is there, a, is there, is there core events that's similar like everyone has to do? And, it, and is it, it sounds like it's a team thing, not, not individual like ISA. Yes. So there's, there's three man teams and then, but if you're an apprentice, uh, you, you, you do some of the events, you know, you do your events alone. So like the core events are the speed climb, um, pull top rescue. So basically a speed climb is how fast you can safely climb up the pole, um, put an egg in your mouth and climb back down without breaking the egg in your mouth um, and without cutting out. So that's an event. Really? Uh, the pull top rescue. Yeah, it, it's it's really cool. You think about flying down a pole, you know, you're going to grit your teeth. So you got to make sure that you don't break that egg. 
Um, and they check it out to make sure it's not cracked. Wow. Um, the pull, the pull top rescue has changed over the last four or five years. Now it's a three man event where, um, you know, one guy has to go up and two guys go up to do the rescue. And then one guy has to be on the ground to, uh, open up a cutout and, and close the cutout. So that's become a team event. So there are a couple of, uh, you know, events that, that are kind of there every year. And then, you know, then, then the mystery events. So, um, a lot more emphasis on safety, you know, 15, 20 years ago, everybody was free climbing. They were just climbing for speed. They'd let the rescue dummies fly to the ground. And now they're all using wood pole fire restriction. This is the first year, I believe, that everybody had to use wood pole fire restriction. And if they're caught out of adjustment or they cut out and fall uh, more than uh, a certain distance, they're basically, they get, so, they get gigged so bad that they virtually have no chance of winning. Wow. So uh, safety has become more uh, paramount in, in this competition than it had been in the past. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Wow, so it's evolving and growing as well. Yeah, so the, the, you talked about the apprentice, it's interesting. So they have a special category for apprentices or new, 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 new to the industry, so to speak. Yeah. Yep. So the apprentice will do his pull tap rescue by himself, uh, where he, he goes up and, and uses, uh, they, they use the ox block wow. to get the individual down. Um, I think they, I'm not sure hundred percent, but I think they have a mystery event. And then they also do the, uh, CPR on the, on the dummies that have all the sensors oh, okay. and, and have to CPR and stuff like that. So, uh, they, and then there's a written test. They have to do a written test as well. So, you know, it's a pretty big deal for an apprentice to go out there and, and finish in the top. You know, they'll say, yep, uh, there might be, you know, 300 journeyman teams and then 400 apprentices. So the apprentices kind of go through that, wow. uh, you know, they go through their, uh, their events solo. Oh, cause, okay. Okay. Interesting. Are you Cause I've, I've often wondered about that. Like, you know, uh, when people start, I think a lot of people are intimidated by even going to the tree climbing competitions and you have the, you have a lot of these chapters that have regional events and more guys will show up because, you know, they're not there for the, well, I'm not going to win anyway. All the big names are there and whatever, but you know, having, uh, you know, a recognition or something first time, you know, like apprentices or first time climbers, there's, you know, a category or something for the, cause I think it's a whole different, you know, you forget about the, what it felt like your first time doing it, you know, the nerves and the intimidation and all of that. And it, it's cool for an industry to recognize yeah. and have something special for them. I don't know if I say like, I say never done that. It'd be in every year. There's a few people that it's their first time, you know, <laughs> not their first time at a comp, yeah. but the first time at the international, certainly. You know, and uh, and so on. So it's interesting. I'm glad they do that. I think it's an important thing to do, for, you know, as you call them, apprentices or new new climbers. Um, and an apprentice yeah. there is yeah. is the lineman. Lineman's a two year or four year apprenticeship. Does it vary depending on state? Yeah, I mean, it's going to depend on the utility. Um, you know, the IBW. Um, you know, their their apprenticeship, I believe, is seven thousand hours. Um, you know, but it's, it's typically, you know, four years, you know, if, if I, if you peg me to one answer, it's going to be four years. Uh, you know, some, some folks will do it in three and a half. And then there's also like, if you go to a, to an accredited line school, like a, a Northwest Lyman's college or SLTC down in Trenton, Georgia, there, there's some of these, uh, 
these IBW halls are called JATCs or Joint Area Training Coordinators. Um, they might give you like 500 hours because you've gone to a line school for, for 16 weeks, or 16 weeks. So uh, they'll bring you in as like a step two apprentice, you know, so now you're starting off as a step two and uh, you basically go seven steps. Okay. Um, so, so there, there, there's different, uh, you know, there, there's different levels, but it, it's typically a four year apprenticeship uh, to, okay. to get in some, and some of these JTCs, are doing Arbor, uh, you know, Arbor's programs too, like Northwest JTC. Okay. I'm sure, you know, uh, you know, Keith up there and, yeah. um, you know, so they, they, they have a, uh, you know, apprenticeship up there where you can get into a, you know, into an accredited program and, and go through steps to become a journeyman tree trimmer, Interesting. Um, which I think is, is a great and, that, and that's, as you say, tree trimmer, it's more for the utility trimming side of things, not so much as you call arboriculture, but it could still be crossover, of course. I'm wondering, why do you think it is that, like that, that the fact that there is an established apprenticeship and and trade for linemen, and even, and that's even spilled over into utility tree trimming, and yet we have the arborist industry you know, quite aimlessly around, like there's really no direction specifically. There's schools here and there, there's training companies like Arbor Master, like Nats, like ours, like Arbor Canada, that, that, that trains, but it's all voluntary. There's no requirements. There really is no, you know, you have Ontario that has an apprenticeship program, but it's only two years and yet it's not, you know, it's not required. You know, nobody needs to do anything to be a tree person. Um, and yet nobody can just up and be a lineman and go trim trees around power lines or do lineman work. Really? I don't think. Why, 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 did, why do we have that? Cause they're, they're so similar and you have a model that exists. How come we don't have it in tree work? My, my guess is that, um, and, and this is just a stab in the dark because I don't really have an answer. Let, let's just say a homeowner or a business could be held liable for hiring somebody who was not a certified arborist. Um, Let's just say I own red lobsters. I'm just, I don't know. It just came to to (laughs) mind. I own three red lobsters in the Binghamton area. And if I hired Tony, who was not certified, was not a certified arborist, uh, to come in and, tri- and trim trees, and then he if something were to happen, if I was liable, that might put a little tension in the system. But but then again, I don't know much about the ISA certification, and if there are a series of you know skills that I need to develop. I know there's written tests and whatnot, but it's very regimented on the utility side because you know first of all, a utility is not going to bring on a, a you know. A, somebody who's not a journeyman lineman to fill a journeyman lineman spot. And if you're an apprentice, you, you go through a regimented training section, but I, I don't know if there's anything like that on the, on the arbor culture side that would, you know, pr- prevent somebody from, you know, just going out and buying a pickup truck and a rope and a chainsaw and a set of spurs and, and, and calling myself an arborist. I mean, I, I go back years ago, I, my father had this huge weeping willow in his backyard. Half of it was over the house. And I had a buddy of mine who was a certified arborist came in and gave him what I thought was a very reasonable quote, very reasonable. My dad ended up hiring 
a, a, a friend of a friend whose son did this. And I said, did you ask him for a certificate of insurance? Did you ask him if he was certified? My dad's like, no, no, no. But he did it for like 700 bucks and, and, and took it away. And I was like, yeah, you're lucky that it didn't fall on your house. And then, uh, you know, come home and then find out that, you know, you had half of a weeping willow, you know, inside the living room and nobody was to be found. I just think the general public is not educated, uh, you know, and I see trees that are topped and people say, yeah, look, I have my trees trimmed. I said, we're trimmed, they were butchered, (laughs) you know, but people just don't know. And I don't know how you get that message out. And I don't know how you, how you put that tension in the system to, to force people to, to, to get into a train, you know, some type of a train program that, uh, you know, brings that level of skill up. It, it, a lot has changed over the last 20 years, you know, and, and there is that desire for knowledge, but I just, I don't think it's where it needs to be by all means. I agree. And it's interesting. I think partly maybe when, as you were talking, I got thinking about it, like the consequences of messing up a power line and electrical component has, you know, pretty immediate consequences and results like like from fire to electrocution to and just performance you know if your power doesn't work people are going to say something pretty quick right (laughs) and if you do something wrong that affects a whole block or a grid like you know you're going to be held accountable for that pretty quickly whereas even even if you mess up a tree you know and you drop it on someone's house like it's pretty individually dealt with it isn't it doesn't affect the community as a whole and and even yeah. though people are dying and we know that, um, it's not for some reason hasn't garnered the same. I, I, I just find it fascinating, you know. And I, I honestly had thought in my career I would see a significant change. And you know, if I've realized anything, it's that I don't think I'm going to realize much change at all, even in what I have left of my life, which. I would like to see that it be more, but I have less understanding of how to make that happen. Just like you said, I don't know. I like the word you use, how to apply the tension required. You know, <laughs> the tension is, you know, to make, to impress, and maybe it's consequent. Or I remember talking to a utility uh, uh, company owner about, you know, why don't you guys upgrade or why don't you teach your guys more of the, the modern techniques? He said, well, we haven't had any accidents. We haven't had any problems. So if nothing's happening, why wouldn't we change anything? Like, well, the guys could work a lot easier. They're a lot safer. If they, well, but we're not having anybody die. We haven't taken any power lines down. What, what's the, like, what's wrong with what we're doing? And I didn't really know what to say to that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, another component too, is that, I mean, you think about the infrastructure, our uh, electrical infrastructure, it, it's all owned by a utility. So, you know, where, where the trees belong to us, right? Um, you know, trees in my backyard. Uh, I can call somebody to, to prune or take down a, a hazardous tree. Whereas if you have, I have a problem with my power, power goes out, I call the utility. So you're basically not working for the private sector as a, as a utility contracting lineman. And if, if you or Tony wanted to start up your own electrical, uh, you know, uh, contracting business, and, and go to New York State Electric and Gas and contract your services out. They're going to want to see safety yeah. records. They're going to want to see certif- certification. So, I, you know, I think that's another difference too. Is that we can hire them privately yeah. to where utility linemen can't go anywhere no. and, and work privately. They're going to have to go, 
you know, it might be a privately held contractor, but at some point you're going to have yeah. to th throw your credentials yeah. out there and, you know, the utilities are going to want to see safety records yeah. uh, of that contracting company that they're considering bringing online. Yeah, so. Absolutely. No, they're definitely, that, that's, a, is definitely a huge part of it. And that's an, you know, really an interesting, and can you imagine such a thing as an environmental utility, if it was ever somehow declared that, you know, any trees within the city limits of any given municipality or city were a utility managed by, you know, the, instead of the electric company, it was the Arbor company, you know, like, like all trees are managed and held by an authority, the, the Arbor culture authority of United States, you know, we, any tree within a jurisdiction of a municipality or a city uh, is now owned and managed by this arboriculture utility and nobody shall work on these trees or do anything. And even the homeowners, the, the power pole might be in your back alley and the tree might be beside it, but the power pole is owned by PG&E and the, the, you know, uh, the trees owned the, by, the trees are owned by this. And, you know, you could plant them if you want, but once you stick it in the ground, it's ours and we own it. And that, I don't know if we're ever going to see something like that happen. People would freak right out, but but that that would make that would, that would create that correlation, that difference, right? And it, you know, you certainly. But it is interesting because if you go to logging, where you have more credentialing and requirements often required, there that forest is often owned by a logging company, and if someone gets hurt logging those trees, and they got to have contractors out there processing that timber then the, there is a liability consideration because there's a, 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 it's like the logging company owns those trees and has to get them logged. And if there's an injury, it goes back through that company. Whereas a private homeowner, like yeah. the pockets are only so deep, right? Interesting. Yeah. Never yeah. thought of that. Yeah. Never thought of that. Maybe that's why you see a bit more of a credentialing aspect in some states and provinces towards logging, but even still less to arboriculture. Interesting, interesting. Um, well, um, you know, we usually get to about 70 minutes for whatever reason, just past an hour, and we're, we're getting to that mark. But I, I think it's been an excellent discussion. I, I don't, I know Tony, are you, uh, Tony, is there anything you want to say as we get to our closing part here with Chris? No, I just want to thank him for being on. It's been an interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. It has been. It has been. You know, I, I just love the every conversation is different. And and, you know, like like we were talking about before the podcast, we don't really plan it out. You know, we, we it, it just sort of evolves. But I, it's been a real interesting foray into the utility side of things. And you know, it's prompted me to think that I'd like to. Is there anybody that you can think of, Chris? And we ask you know, a lot of times we garner our audience from our interviewees uh, and and. You know, not it doesn't have to be within the utility world, but is there someone that you could think of that would would enjoy doing this, like, and and would be willing to be a part of it that you might recommend? Yeah, I, I got a couple. Um, let me let let me uh, come up with a couple of uh, names for okay. you, for okay. sure. Um, you know, the um, yeah, I just want to make sure that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just trying to think of how, how to put it nicely. You know, some some of these guys are uh, <laughs> pretty 
pretty rough and rough around the edges. Um, you know, some, some of the older guys that I know are not very computer savvy, yeah, right, right. Um, you know, but they, I, I want to get to, you know, somebody that, uh, that's been around long enough that, uh, you know, ha- has seen the change and, uh, but somebody that's, you know, young enough to where they can, uh, you know, get on here and, and be well-spoken and, and uh, represent the industry. Sure, sure. Good. But, uh, yeah, let me, um, how, uh, how have you, how, you know, having uh, done the podcast, so to speak, how, how, how has it felt? How's it gone for you? Well, I, I think, um, well, I, I, again, this is the first podcast I've ever done. I've never even watched. I've watched bits and pieces of them. But uh, I guess when you have a moderator like you, you make it easy, <laughs> you know, um, I you know, and, and again, we kind of talked in the beginning, you don't know what you know until you realize that you know it. Um, you know, I, I kind of feel like, you know, with with you asking the questions, I could sit here for four more hours and, and probably not cover the same the same topic. But I, it's been enjoyable. Uh, it's been enjoyable going back to some of the far reaches of my memory and you know, thinking about, you know, swinging off that big pine in front of the tree and, you know, in front of the house when I was a kid and, you know, coming up through the industry and, uh, you know, experiencing, you know, just wanting to understand. That was the biggest thing is just like, uh, you know, I, I used to get questions. You remember Jim? Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, you know, JP would be like, well, what do you got to go do that for? You're a salesman. You're not an arborist. It's like, well, if I'm going to go talk to these guys, I got to understand yeah. what they're going through. I got to understand the pain that they're feeling. I got to understand the equipment that yeah. they're using and and you know i've always been that kind of guy that if i'm going to go out and sell something i'm going to i'm going to get a sample of it and go hanging it for you know a couple of days before i got to go present it and and understand does it pinch here does it hurt here and you know does it uh you know is it uncomfortable for this way so but again it's just my nature of uh you know of who I am that I, I got to understand it before I can talk about it. I remember that, you know, I remember, you know, working with you over the years and I always remember that about you, you know, you would, you'd like to get down, you get down into it. You know, it's not, it was never a, you would always have a relatable story. You, you had, you know, you, it, you'd, you'd taken the time to, to experience not just, you know, here's how it fits, here's how you size it, but what actually feels to spend time either in a belt or, on the rope or whatever, you know, and that, that's why I asked you to share the story about the, the tower, because when you, when you transitioned over and we didn't see as much in the arborist world, you, you know, I remember you at one point you talking about this ascent and like that you, and I, and I had never done that. Like I've never gone that high and I was always fascinated by that. You know, I remember you throwing out that one day we'll go out there and maybe, you know, take us up one. I'd, I'd still maybe one day like to do that. I, it'd be really cool. I've never been up a tower, you know, and, and it'd be kind of neat. And, and uh, I've always appreciated your love of the outdoors and, and, and everything else. We always have good conversations. And uh, I just want to thank you as well for, you know, you know, being willing to just say, okay, well, what do we talk about? Well, you'll see. Okay. And being willing to take that journey with us, unknowing where it's going to go and how it's going to go. Talk, getting right back to what you said. You know, we don't know the future, right? We didn't know where this podcast was going to go and look at where it went. And I think it went really well. So thank you, Chris. Yeah, I, I got to say, it was definitely outside my comfort zone because, again, when I do presentations or I got to get up and talk in front of people, like I'll pre- prepare, prepare. You can never over prepare for something, right? So, you know, I was just kind of like, uh, well, you know, I trust my man, Tony. Tony said it's organic. It'll it'll happen. And, 
you know, I, I should have never even questioned Tony. It's, uh, you know, he, he was right as always. I said, you would like to think that we try and cultivate this culture, but it's really the fact that Dwayne and I can't organize shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're we're a casualty of our own of our own dysfunction, but we rise to the level of our exactly. incompetence. Exactly. <laughs> it worked. We're all right. 